I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, who's fighting for our children's rights? Legal scholar Adam Benferrato suggests kids themselves are quite capable of becoming far more actively involved. They know what it is like to experience a lockdown drill, to say to those kids, well, adults will handle it. Well, the adults haven't handled it. And so I think now is the time to allow kids to actually have their say on the present and have their say on the future. And later, the societal and psychological impact of parent activism in our schools. School board meetings in which members of the community came in armed, that has a deep effect on the willingness of educators to support young people. Prioritizing kids and how parent activism is changing how children see their place in the world. That's coming up on Life Examined. It's often said that children are our future, and the 21st century has come a long way to protect and champion our kids' lives from centuries past, when children had to work at young ages, receive little or no education, and frequently died in poverty. Economically and socially, from public education and school lunches to car seats, bike helmets, vaccines, and even tax credits, children in the last 70 years are doing much better than they ever did. But the picture isn't really that rosy. Car crashes and firearms remain the leading causes of child fatalities. When it comes to the environment, climate, and social justice, it's often parent rights and corporate rights that come before the well-being of the child. So how can we change that? And why is this so fundamentally important? In his latest book, A Minor Revolution, lawyer and advocate Adam Benferrato says it's time to do something— Why not give kids a bigger voice, allow them to vote, and make, quote, child impact statements the law? Why should birth or zip code impact a child's ability to prosper as an adult? Prioritizing our kids, Ben Ferrato argues, is the best and surest way to improve all of our lives. Joining me now is Adam Ben Ferrato, professor of law at the Drexel University Klein School of Law. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, as a law professor, I, I'm curious as to your interest in particular the rights of children or how you think that our culture has led us astray in terms of how we treat the minors around us. So maybe give us a little background into your interest in this subject. Yeah, so this is something that I think uh, is a topic that I was thinking about actually as a child. And so You know, I remember when I found out um, in elementary school that my best friend's dad spanked him. Uh, I didn't think that was right. I remember in junior high school seeing boys, you know, really picked on and brutalized uh, in gym class um, and feeling outraged uh, more at the indifference of the adults who saw exactly what I saw and did nothing. Um, And I think certainly. Um, I thought that I should actually get to vote when I was a 12-year-old, and I didn't understand the arguments when it was explained to me why uh, that wasn't possible. It didn't add up for me, and I think it was that sort of sense of injustice that really drew me um, to go to law school and that kind of shaped the types of questions I was interested in as a legal scholar. Um, And I think, you know, this project is an attempt to talk to everyone. You know, I get to go to a lot of academic conferences and talk to other law professors about stuff like this, but this just seems to me um, to be really the most important question, how we treat children um, going forward for this country. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you think I'm off here, but maybe there's a general narrative, at least in America, that things have gotten better for children, right? We're not kind of in you know, the industrial workplaces of the 1800s and kids were being sent off to warehouses to work um, and that there are more protections in place. I, But I take it that you don't really buy that from the way I'm describing well, I, it. I, yeah, I think, you know, um, it really is interesting to look back a uh, hundred or so years ago. This was this moment around the turn of the 20th century where there we were sort of coming out of the Industrial Revolution and realizing you know, the horrors of how we'd been treating children. So we had all of these uh, 
sort of efforts across the country to change the trajectories of young people. And so that meant interventions with uh, really creating better schools, mandatory public education, um, providing cleaner cow's milk, uh, introducing sort of efforts to uh, reform the juvenile justice system. Uh, and I think what is so um, disappointing to me is that we just haven't made the expected progress in these areas, even things like child labor. There was just a big expose in the New York Times yes. a couple of days ago yeah. showing right how the assumption that, well, kids don't work in factories anymore. Kids don't work picking tobacco anymore. Well, absolutely they do. And it's often the most vulnerable children migrant children who are doing these jobs with little or no oversight. Um, and so I think in some areas, the progress is is shockingly bad. In fact, I mean, I may, might even suggest it's a regression. In other areas, um, I think my response to people who say, well, there are less children um, who are living in poverty than were 100 years ago. I would say yes, but the Fortune 500 companies last year in 2022 had $16 trillion in revenue. And yet we have 11 million children living in poverty. And to me, that's the comparison mm. that we ought to make our incredible abilities in comparison to people living in the, the early 20th century. And yet we do so much less with those advantages. I'm interested in your kind of like philosophic or psychological underpinnings in terms of why you think prioritizing children in particular are so important, right? Because people can yeah. take much different views. We should prioritize, you know, migrants or older people yeah. or teens or what, whatever it is. But I, I, I'm curious, like, what, how do you, how does this argument kind of resonate in, to you in right. a way that's, you know, in, intellectual and interesting and deep? What, what do you think? Yeah, so I come at this topic, I think, from a slightly different perspective than a lot of people who are interested in making rights arguments. I think rights mm -hmm. arguments tend to be framed around, this is just the morally correct thing to do, this sort of natural rights perspective. Um, and I want to actually try to create a much... Uh, bigger tent, uh, if you will, to bring people into this issue. And, and my argument is this is the pathway. Putting children first is the pathway to creating the America we all want to live in. Um, prioritizing kids' welfare, that is protecting them from harm, ensuring their needs, granting them a voice in our country. That's the least costly and most effective way to address the major problems we face, whether that's poverty or health or crime. And that's because as a society, you always bear the cost of addressing um, societal problems. And the only question is just, do you want to pay pennies on the front end for early uh, sort of interventions in childhood? Or do you want to pay many dollars on the back end after things have really hardened and metastasized. And it's just a choice. Do you want to pay for preschools, healthcare for infants and children, or do you want to pay for prisons and triple bypasses down the line? And so I try to make the argument that even if you were indifferent to children, you ought to care very, very much about children's welfare. You write a lot about the idea that children are essentially politically voiceless. Right. And I think the argument there as well, they're still um, they're not yet, you know, fully functioned or fully formed adults that can make rational or logical decisions. But I know that that kind of argument doesn't really sit well with you. And as a result, there, there's a lot of uh, the sense of kind of underrepresentation or, again, a, a voicelessness coming out of the people that may need help, but can't really do anything about it. A absolutely. Um, and so I think this is if I was to pick the most important right in this book. Um, it might be this one, right? The, the right to a voice, the right to be heard. Um, and that's because I think it is the pathway to realizing some of the, the other rights in the book. For example, a right to investment, a, a right of all children um, to be capitalized with this great wealth of this country. Um, I think that's only gonna be achieved 
when children actually have real political power. I think one of the reasons that so many uh, economic and other resources are focused on older people is older people vote. And so I think this is uh, this is the pathway um, to really seeing the broader change that I that I hope is in our future. Now, when I talk to people about young people voting, I, you know, the first response I usually get is, is something align, uh, along the lines of what, what you kind of said. Right. Kids just don't have the capacity. Um, and I think that that really is contested by the available psychology uh, and neuroscience evidence that we have. Uh, when it comes to voting relevant cognition, um, you know, what psychologists have found is really there's no difference between the average 16 year old and the average adult when it comes to that sort of cold cognition. Now, children are very different in terms of their decision making when it comes to hot cognition, when, for example, um, they are in a, a scenario where um, they're surrounded by their peers and they have to make a split second decision um, when it involves impulse control. Um, that's somewhere where, you know, we know the areas of the brain involved in that type of regulation often don't uh, fully develop until someone is in their 20s. Mm. That's really different than those cold cognition moments. Deciding about a president um, is something that most people think about over a period, a very long period of time. And the moment they go to the, the, the ballot, that's actually, you know, it's, it's a more of a mechanical thing. And so I really think that, you know, capacity wise, um, many high schoolers, if not all high schoolers are, are well qualified to do so. And I also think it's really important if you're concerned about capacity to realize all of the people, all of the adults that we let vote who are, have, you know, well below average capacity on all of these issues. And so I think often what I say is if you're worried about this, you probably should be even more worried about older people, people who are in their 80s and their 90s. Now, I think that the founders were well aware of this danger of people who maybe uh, might vote based on things that don't seem rational or reasonable. And they decided to extend at that time as broadly as they could imagine. It wasn't very broad from our perspective now, but for them, it was a very broad uh, sort of uh, extension of voting rights. Um, and I think we need to sort of share that same mentality today, realizing that the costs of denying young people um, a vote are, are very significant indeed. Now, the other response that I often hear or get is, okay, I hear you on the capacity argument, but at the very least, kids just don't have relevant experience in the world. And I think that that response, I think, is particularly frustrating to me because in writing this book, I talked to many kids. And one of the things that I noticed was just how politically engaged kids are and just how much they are thinking about and worrying about the most pressing um, issues that are facing our country. They know what it is like to experience a lockdown drill in their school. Mm. They have friends who are gay, they, this is the most multicultural, the, the, the next generation, it's the most multicultural generation America has ever seen. They are worried about climate change. They're worried about racial justice. They're concerned about police brutality. They are experiencing many of those things. Kids experience poverty. Kids experience being shaken down by a police officer. And to say to those kids, well, the adults will handle it. Well, the adults haven't handled it. And mm -hmm. so I think now is the time to allow kids to actually have their say um, on the present and have their say on the future. And just for those that are kind of want to play your argument out about voting further, I mean, would you propose a different age? And if so, like, what would that be? I mean, is it eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12? I mean, what, what would you think? Well, I think, you know, in the book, I sketch out a number of different possibilities. Um, and I think they are all better than the status quo. I think the most likely thing that I, I foresee happening in the United States is sort of a gradual approach where we already have a few municipalities around the country that have lowered the voting age for local elections. Mm. Um, I see that likely to continue to happen in primarily 
blue cities. Um, recently, you know, uh, uh, in San Francisco, it was a very close ballot measure. And I see that as something uh, that certainly within my lifetime, um, we will have many more 16-year-olds voting in um, local elections in mm. the United States. Um, now, I think it's still possible, and I certainly am going to be advocating for this in the, the years ahead, that we actually do get change at the federal level. There's already been um, votes on this at the, um, in, in the House of Representatives. Um, and so I think it's possible we could have a lowering, just as we did um, with the 26th Amendment in the United States, allowing the voting age to 18. I think that's possible. Again, a number of countries around the world, countries including Austria and Brazil, have lowered their voting age to 16. Um, I think the logical, uh, or I think what's likely to happen over a period of many decades is that we have another lowering, probably to 14. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually maybe even getting rid of um, the, the voting age altogether. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think we've been thinking about um, the decision and, and I, I think we've been thinking about sort of the framing of voting the wrong way. And, and some of this, I think, is really well articulated by an 11-year-old I talked to named Andre. And unprompted, as I asked him, you know, what he thought about himself voting, um, the thing that came immediately to his mind is, well, you know, it's really unfair. Um, I know this couple um, down my street who's in their 80s and they get two votes, but I have a nine-year-old sister and my family with two parents and two kids only gets two votes too. We should get four votes, four people, four votes, one person, one vote. Hmm. And I think, you know, that is in many ways a more logical frame. We're undercounting people in the United States and people who are going to live a lot longer with the consequences of any election than those octogenarian uh, uh, folks down the street. So I think there is a strong um, practical case for arguing that young every person in the United States should have a vote. It should be cast by proxy, by parents until children um, themselves want to assert uh, 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 their sort of own autonomy. I think that's really, to me, very logical. I think that would result in better policy for our country. But I think on a practical level, it's probably not going to happen. I think mm. the gradual lowering of the voting age, 16 at local level, finally, a constitutional amendment to lower it at the federal level is the most likely path forward. This might be a question really, though, for maybe a psychologist or developmental psychologist. But I mean, do you have any sense of when someone is just too young, too cognitively unformed to vote? In some ways, I think the right question to ask is not when is a young person capable of voting, but currently, what are the conditions in which we remove the vote from someone, right, who we've determined uh, is, is no longer qualified? And when we reframe it that way, I think we start to see how low a bar we actually are comfortable with. In general, when we're removing, you know, someone's vote for some very elderly person who's uh, suffering from certain cognitive deficits, we're really reluctant to do so. And if someone is able to articulate how voting works, right, how, how is a winner picked, if they understand um, the basic uh, idea of I'm voting for governor, we usually will not remove that person's um, uh, uh, enfranchisement. And I think, you know, one of the things we have to realize is that we make quite a lot of accommodations to help people who have different capacities to vote. You don't have to read English to vote. You don't have to be able to see to vote. We require uh, individuals to get the help they need to exercise this fundamental right. And I think we could do so much more. Once we have that frame, I think it starts to be clear that we could do so much more to actually help children 
for one thing, we could give them a lot more education about voting and about civics. That we, we tend to assume, well, children are just the way they are. Well, no, children could know a lot more about our country. They could understand a lot more about how voting works and yeah. the implications of their vote. And I think we could do a lot more to actually make the issues clear to them. We could, I think, just keep playing these <laughs> interesting arguments out for another hour. And there's a lot more in your book I really want to get to uh, because I, I kind of want to give you a chance to talk about some of the other major reforms. I mean, kind of like if you had yeah. the magic wand, what you would do to try and really prioritize children. And so we've talked about voting, which I know is really important, but if you could pick kind of the next most important thing, a, a major reform you'd like to see passed, what would it be? Yeah, so I think one of the things to get... Uh, the government thinking about children in everything that they do would be to require uh, with the passage of a new law or regulation or policy, a child impact statement. Mm. Now, we have good precedent for that in, our, in the United States as a result of um, environmental uh, regulations. We now require environmental impact statements. More recently, certain states like New Jersey have adopted racial impact statements. And the child impact statement has had a lot of success if we look around the world. And this comes out in part from the Convention on the Rights of the Child that we already talked about. So this is a way, I think, for um, policymakers and legislators to think about kids, not simply in areas where um, I think kids are front and center, for example, something about extending health insurance that would cover kids, but in areas where there's a big impact, but it's kind of hidden, for example, on energy policy or on minimum wage. Um, I think in some ways adopting a child first perspective requires some new little nudges uh, to get people to notice how kids are affected by everything that we do. Now, I also think that we ought to be thinking on the back end about ways that we might raise awareness about the impacts on kids and to find ways to put children first in terms of um, uh, outcomes. And so I actually argue in the book in favor of abandoning originalism in interpreting the Constitution and other uh, statutes in favor of taking a child first perspective there too. Again, I think focusing on kids leads to better uh, uh, policymaking. It also leads to better law. I think, you know, we have had over the last uh, few years, a number of opinions, both at the Supreme Court level and at the lower um, uh, federal appellate level, that said, you know, when we're looking at whether it is okay um, to bar a uh, someone who is subject to a domestic violence um, restraining order from uh, using uh, possessing a firearm, um, courts have generally said, well, let's just go back and look at whether you know fathers who uh, were physically uh, abusing their uh, children got to keep their weapons in the 18th century. That's how we should answer that question mm. uh, in terms of what the Second Amendment means. I think that that is, is a recipe for uh, disaster. I think what we need to ask is what is the lived experience of children today? And we know that firearms are today the leading cause of death for children in this in the united states um and so i think those are the kind of changed perspective uh policies and um uh, approaches that i think could set us on a really different and better course as a country you've also just presented some really fascinating data in terms of the circumstances in which children grow up i, I i'd love for you to talk about for example the, the rate of evictions that children may experience in their lives or the importance of the zip code in which they grow up in, because I think these all factor into, you know, whether or not we actually live in what is still some remnants of the American dream, or if there is such a thing as a meritocracy, which we've challenged a lot on this program. And um, I, I'd be curious on your thoughts on all those. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the most powerful moments for me, um, I did a lot of interviews for this book and uh, talking to a young man, um, reflecting on kind of this defining moment um, from his childhood. He was from the city I live in, Philadelphia. And he told me about this moment when he was uh, six years old and his family had just lost their house. Uh, he was effectively uh, homeless. I saw this man, everything about him, it was, he was just meticulous. It was like this perfect suit. And he had this beautiful Rolex watch and this briefcase. And he said, he looked at his family standing there on the street. And he said, I don't get it. H how can this be? Here's someone who has everything and my family has nothing. How is this even possible? What does he know? that we don't know. Mm. This young man had um, gotten a scholarship to a wealthy private school in Pennsylvania. He ended up at Wharton. Um, and so I said, well, what do you say to someone who says, you know, you're a success story, you're, you're proof. And he said, my story does not show America's success. My story shows all of our failures. You know, he said, just look at all of the friends that I left behind. Mm -hmm. Look at what happened to them. Look at everything that I faced along the way and still face today. I think that is, is, is just for a country with the wealth that we have. It is just utterly unacceptable. And I think we need to change really um, what we see um, our legacy as, as, you know, as older Americans um, start the, the boomer generation uh, who is sitting on trillions of dollars of wealth starts to look toward death and, and to their legacy. I think we need a radical reorientation where people who are facing the end of their life think what I want to do is capitalize the next generation. Well, finally, there's a really beautiful Nelson Mandela quote that maybe shares in a bit of the spirit of of children that, that you're talking about. Maybe you could read it for us. Absolutely. It's, it's one of my favorite quotes. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. It's been such a pleasure to be joined by Adam Benferrato, professor of law at the Drexel University Klein School of Law and the author of the new book, A Minor Revolution, How Prioritizing Kids Benefits Us All. Adam, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Still to come, what's happening in our nation's schools? From gun violence to violent and polarizing rhetoric, our education system is under attack. We'd also love to get your perspective on whether it's a good idea to reduce the voting age. Share your comments with our Facebook community. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We heard legal scholar Adam Benferrato say that one of the biggest revelations he had in writing his book was discovering just how politically engaged and informed kids are. A good education system is one of the best signs of a healthy democracy. And when subjects are controversial, schools and teachers traditionally provide a safe environment for civil discourse. But the work of public schooling in America is facing tough new challenges, from angry parents and activists demanding greater control over what their kids learn and read in school, especially when it comes to race and gender. Rather than being a safe space, school children are currently in the crosshairs of a culture war, exposed to an increasingly hostile environment over what they should and should not learn. Joining me now is John Rogers, professor at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA and director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. John Rogers, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm very happy to be here. I'd love for you to just give us kind of a broad sense 
of what you see happening in schools right now in terms of the uh, the amount of political forces making its way into classrooms into school curricula into administration and you know this clearly must have an impact on the way that children are operating in school and I, I know that's a big first question but give us a if you can kind of a short sense of of how you come at this subject yes i've been deeply interested in the ways that young people learn to become powerful and agentive citizens in our society for many years. And I've been concerned over the last few years that increasing contention and political conflict in our broader society, in our media, uh, rhetoric from our politicians is seeping into public schools and affecting the possibilities for young people to learn to become powerful and agentive community members. This past summer, I did a, a survey with high school principals from all across the country, and we heard many principals speak to the heightened levels of conflict that were playing out in their schools, parents and community members challenging what was being taught, how things were being taught, challenging the rights of certain students. And I also heard principals speak to the ways that some of that conflict was playing out among students, liberal students making hostile and demeaning remarks towards other students in their classrooms, in the hallways, etc. Do you feel like this is a kind of recent phenomenon or have schools always been a place where, you know, politics have, have found a way into the doors of the school and that there was always kind of a sense of, of hostility? So politics always shapes all of our lives. And that's a good thing. We are political animals, as Aristotle said <laughs> um, eons ago. And, and yet, just in the last few years, we've seen increasingly a heightened level of conflict play out within our public schools. Four or five years ago, when I first began serving educators about conflict in their schools, I heard that the political rhetoric in broader society was affecting young people. Young people were feeling more vulnerable and stressed as they were hearing this rhetoric. And to some extent, they were then enacting it um, in their interactions with other young people. In the last two years, there's been more of a purposeful effort on the part of some conservative activists around the country to target public schools as sites for gaining partisan advantage. And they've targeted these public schools through a set of culturally divisive issues. And in that targeting, they've encouraged parents and community members to challenge school boards, to challenge what schools are doing, to make Freedom of Information Act requests, to raise difficult questions to, to principals, and to do so sometimes in violent um, ways or through violent rhetoric. And that has made the work of public schooling far more difficult. It has created more stressful environments in public schools in which young people already are experiencing a great deal of stress due to the pandemic and other aspects of adolescent life at this moment. Can you give me some examples of, of the way in which, you know, let's say voices from the right are trying to come in and shape the way that schools function or the ideas or the curriculum that, that's being taught? Sure. Um, a principal in, in North Carolina noted that we have these small clusters of hate, in her words, mm. that are coming into school board meetings or coming into local public schools and saying to educators, you cannot teach material that's addressing issues of race or racism at all. So the Pulitzer Prize winner Toni Morrison's work has been, has been challenged. Um, the movies that, that lift up experiences of, of African-Americans and talk about African-American um, scientists have been challenged. Students um, who are gay and lesbian have found that members of the local community have been challenging whether or not the schools should provide them with, with their rights to, to, to be themselves in, in local public schools. Mm. There's been many efforts around the country to limit students' access to certain library books or, or curriculum um, books more generally. Yeah. 
So as an educator and, and someone who has been following this for years, I mean, what are your thoughts about parental rights or the involvement of parents and their kids' education? I mean, should they, should they have a big voice in this or is this, should this be for, you know, politicians or school boards or larger committees? What are your thoughts on that? So we have this dilemma. If we believe in democracy, if we believe in democratic education, then it's critically important that parents and other members of the community have a significant role to play in shaping the curriculum, in shaping how students learn, in, in trying to work together to craft quality public schools for all. I believe deeply in the importance of, of parent participation in public education. In fact, I co-edited a book a couple years ago called Public Engagement for Public Education. Mm. I would draw a distinction, though, between parent participation that aims to work with a collective of parents to improve public schools for all and what the more recent form of parent rights has been, which is to say that individual parents emerge and seek to have their own views enacted for everyone. And so part of the, the recent activism, the conservative activism that's playing, around, playing out around the country has, um, has sought to use violence or violent rhetoric, has sought to exclude some students and their rights from public schools, has denied the dignity of some students within public schools, particularly gay and lesbian and trans youth. And I think that those dynamics are fundamentally anti-democratic. Mm. I mean, you use the word violent rhetoric. What yeah. are some of the tactics that are being used to try and, you know, sway opinion within schools or make changes? I mean, it sounds like some of this is, uh, I, I mean, is, is deeply uncomfortable for those that have to be navigating this, whether as an admin, administrator or, uh, or teacher. Can you share some of that? So a good deal of the violence or violent rhetoric has played out at school board meetings over the last couple of years. Many principals talked about school board meetings in which members of the community came in armed hmm. in which members of the community made threats to school board members during the meetings in which parents or community members threatened educators in in interactions via email that has a deep effect on the ability of of local boards to govern it has a deep effect on the willingness of educators to support young people. Many principals we've spoken to talked about the challenge of sustaining their staff, of, of keeping teachers employed at their school when they were facing um, contentious voices from the community. And some principals talked about looking towards retirement themselves. Right. These issues of losing professionals to the to the to education have become more acute at a moment when we have shortages of teachers across the country of shortages of principals mm. talk to me about how all of this then impacts the the children or the teens that are in these schools i mean what what is it like to know that there are these kind of violent you know rhetoric happenings within the school board and that what's happening in their classroom is ultimately being politicized. Do you have any data or just any research on, you know, what it's like now to be a part of this as a student? Well, as I was noting before, these are very stressful times for adolescents in the United States. And it, it's interesting alongside of these political effects that the principals we interviewed said that overwhelmingly, students were experiencing more stress and trauma now than they had prior to the pandemic. Almost all principals we spoke to said that. Now, in this really stressful time, we hear a couple different dynamics playing out. One is, unfortunately, that some of the conflict in the broader society is making its way into student interactions. So there, there are many students acting in derogatory ways towards one another, acting in more conflictual ways towards one another 
either based on the political ideology of their fellow students or sometimes based on the sexual orientation or the race of their fellow students. And that's deeply troubling because we need to have public schools be spaces where all young people feel that they're affirmed and feel a deep sense of belonging, that being affirmed and feeling belonging are essential to the learning process. Mm. We also hear at the same time that many young people are seeking to build bridges towards other students at their school who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences. And so we're in a moment where we both have some young people enacting conflict and some young people becoming these agents for bridging and agents for enacting empathy and understanding in their community. My hope is that that latter group is, is going to, to prevail, that, that their dynamics will, will become more and more pervasive within schools. But in order for that to happen, we need adults to be more supportive of their efforts and to enable youth to, 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 um, to, to take on that role. Mm. I've also heard, you know, anecdotally from people in my lives uh, who either are teachers or were teachers and are saying suddenly, I don't even know if I want to be involved in this profession anymore. Do you have fears that looking forward, a lot of folks that are interested in, in educating young people are going to say, no, thanks. I'll take my skills elsewhere. I do think that's a concern. And I think it's a concern in certain political um areas and not in others. So as I talk to educators in Los Angeles, these political dynamics that we've been talking about do not prevail. That in in very blue Los Angeles, there are not there are not instances of heightened political contention. Mm -hmm. Educators feel fully empowered to support young people um, as they interact with one another, as they engage in dialogue, as they learn about issues of race and racism. However, in many states, there are increasing pressures from on high and lots of threatening political rhetoric from the governor, from state legislators, telling educators that they cannot teach about issues of race and racism, um, telling educators that they cannot support LGBTQ youth to be who they want to be. And I think in those spaces, it becomes very difficult for educators who want to affirm young people to enact their roles. My guest has been John Rogers, professor in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA and the director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education and Access. He's also co-author of Learning Power, Organizing for Education and Justice. John, thanks for sharing your research with us and spending the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it, too. Tragically, the heightened conflict around schools has also included yet another school shooting. This time, three nine-year-olds in Nashville were shot dead. Hard to imagine that today, part of every American child's curriculum also includes regular lockdown drills. How does that impact a child psychologically? How do children process the very idea that someone with a gun could come into their school with the sole purpose of killing? Joining me now is Erica Felix, professor of clinical psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Erica Felix, welcome. Thank you for having me. What do we know about how children process stress? And if we stay with just the case of those who are impacted by this directly, what do we know about kind of long-term psychological consequences of this or the development of different mental disorders or the predisposition of mental disorders? Do we, is there anything that's kind of known about that in the field? Yes, there, there's quite a bit known. And first of all, I like to talk about in the short term, like the immediate aftermath yeah. we're experiencing right now after the Nashville shooting, there's a lot of understandable reactions to extraordinary events like this tragedy. And so we don't want to pathologize any of that. It, it's very normal to have sadness, worry, fear, anger, but it's also very normal to have a numbing of emotions. And so our mind and our body have a huge capacity to heal and to be resilient. And so we want to make sure we want to allow space and time and the social connections for people to be able to do that. 
But if symptoms start to develop in the more longer term aftermath, medium to longer term aftermath, we want people to come in and get help as soon as possible. And so people can experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress, of depression, of anxiety, of anger, and for older youth, even possibly substance use. For most people, the good news is, is that with enough time and with support, um, and that's mainly from their own social support network, it doesn't necessarily mean therapy, most people will be on this resilient trajectory or a recovery trajectory. Um, only a small minority show chronic impairment over the long term, and we want to get those people into treatment as soon as possible because we know recovery is possible. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really important to say, and, and maybe you just have a few more words about that, that maybe what we're learning in the psychology field is that humans are capable of withstanding these horrific events, that the brain is an incredibly malleative organ, and so are emotions when they're treated, you know, with care and compassion and time. Exactly. And so that is the biggest message. And I think that's what's surprises people because most people think you experience a trauma, you might develop post you develop post traumatic stress disorder, but there's a lot of mitigating factors. Yes, going through an experience like this puts you at risk, especially if you were highly exposed, like you witnessed the events live, um, you know, somebody who was hurt or killed in an event, you saw adults reacting with terror or fear is those things can put you at higher risk, but it doesn't equal a disorder level reaction. Mm. Most people will be resilient or recover. Do we know if there's any differentiation between how a minor, let's say someone under 12 reacts to trauma versus uh, a teenager, 14, 15, 16, any differences? Great question. Yes, there is. Because, I mean, for all youth, and I would even put young adults, like our coping skills are still developing. But when you're talking about under 12, um, our language abilities to express what we're feeling and and trying to deal with is different um, versus older youth. Um, and you're more reliant on your parents' care and they their reactions are going to matter across that age gamut you just mentioned, but especially for the younger children, um, how they show how they're coping mm. and hopefully showing healthy examples of coping with difficult events and healthy examples of grieving or going out to try to support the community. Um, those things can help. Children will can also show more of their stuff through play. Um, they also can regress into some of the into some younger age behaviors following a trauma. So they might have more separation anxiety from parents. They might all are at risk for more sleeping problems, and that's understandable in the first few weeks after this because our body is processing the stress response. Um, but that can persist, and that's that's very that's challenging for all ages, but it can be especially challenging for the younger ages. I think it's not just uh, school shootings also that impact school climate, but you know we're also talking about the way that that politics are playing out and being debated in schools. Um, what books are allowed to be read, or questions of you know gender, what's allowed, what's not allowed, and I think. There's this sense that these schools are kind of becoming more just generally hostile in a sense, whether that, you know, arrives in the classroom or not, and maybe it's just in the administrative level or parents level, but it seems to all be within the same ecosystem. Do you, do you feel any of that as well? From the educators I have had the privilege of talking to and working with, I know that they're feeling stress on multiple levels and mm. for many of the things that you just mentioned there. And so when we think about teachers' own emotional health and being able to do the job that they do every day, which is challenging and rewarding every day, um, thinking about all this other stuff with political climate and other things, it's wearing on on their enjoyment of their job. It's contributing to teacher burnout. Mm. There's been research showing that. Um, so it's definitely something that we do need to look holistically at. Mm. 
do we know if there's any greater prevalence of um, anxiety-related disorders, depression within the students themselves? I mean, are, are, is more of that coming to light just in terms of what you see or what any research bears out? So research coming out, I believe it was the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System that the CDC does, is that across most indicators, um, students are showing poor mental health than they have in years past. And I believe there are other studies besides that one that show that. So from a variety of sources that I have looked at over the last few months, we definitely see that mental health is worsening because there's just more stress that people have been dealing with, um, and that adds up. Mm. And I think it's always kind of an interesting question as, as mental health becomes more part of, I think, mainstream conversations, I hope, at least in places where it's prioritized, it, is, it a, is it something that, you know, we see higher rates of it because we screen more for it, we're more aware of it, there's more language for it, or I think there's a really strong case to make, like the one you just said, that there might just also be a lot more stress in the field as well. Yeah, I think it's both. It's a both and. Um, I appreciate that there is less mental health stigma about going out and asking for help because um, our brain is a part of our body and we should be able to ask for help for it just as we would for anything else. Um, but I, and I know there's more awareness of it, but definitely like the American Psychological Association each year publishes a Stress in America report, mm. and the youngest generation is stressed about so many things. We all have higher levels of stress related to mass shootings in the United States across generations, but especially the youngest generation. But that was just one part of the stress that they were surveying on. People are stressed about pandemic recovery, the the normal stressors that we have had for generations, like Think about kids and school bullying and other things like that. I mean, that hasn't disappeared. So um, we have all the stressors that we've normally had, and then we're recovering from a pandemic, and we have way too many mass shootings in the United States. My guest has been Erica Felix, professor of clinical psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Erica, we really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. Now we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook group. I'm sure many of you are educators or no educators or maybe just have kids in the school system. How are you making sense of this conversation today? Does some of this ring true? Do you have a different perspective? Please join the conversation on our Facebook group. You can find the link at kcrw.com slash life examined. We have a goal of getting to a thousand members and we would love your help. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.